0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We are going to continue our series, Friends, Brothers, and Others. This week is week five, and uh, this is, the title is basically whoever wrote this book of the Bible that we're covering each week. So in 2022, we're going through the Bible book by book. We've been chronologically, but the letters are kind of all over the place, so we're kind of just going in New Testament order. And today, we're going to talk about two brothers of Jesus that wrote books of the Bible. So James, who wrote the book of James, go figure, and Jude, who wrote the book of... Jude, you nailed it. Uh, They were two of the brothers of Jesus. He had two other brothers that are named and possibly a sister or two that are unnamed, but these are two of them, and they each wrote their own book in the New Testament. Now, these two guys, we're going to do a two-for-one. We're going to tag, they're going to tag team today, and what they're going to do is they're going to help us do something spiritually dangerous. So if you saw my Facebook with this morning, which some of you did, I'm going to give tightrope walking lessons today. Now, I don't have a literal tightrope, and I should have, like, figured that out, but insurance, you know, all that red tape and stuff, they wouldn't have been happy with that. Uh, anyway, so we're going to learn how to spiritually walk a tightrope this morning. So Jude and James are going to come together. What we're going to do is we're, Jude is going to show us the tightrope. He's going to show us, hey, here's, here's what we're going to try to walk. And then James is going to show us how to successfully do that. So Jude's going to tell us what the tightrope is, and James is going to show us how to walk it. They didn't probably intend to have their books merged together, but guess what? They never met me, so here we go. Um, we're going to have quite a bit of supporting scripture. It's kind of been a theme the last several weeks. Uh, we're going to be, Jude is just one chapter. So we're going to start out there as our launching off point. And then we're going to flesh that idea out with James chapter two and a few other supporting scriptures today. So let's start in Jude. Uh, we're going to read verses 17 through 23, and here's the tightrope that we're g- going to examine uh, today as we try to walk this tightrope. Jude verse 17. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives." Especially that last part there is the tightrope that we're trying to learn to walk today. Uh, And here's the main question that we're going to, here's how we're going to kind of couch it today in this main question that we're going to examine. The question is, how do we boldly and biblically live out our faith without living in judgment toward others? That is really what Jude is talking about. That's the main issue that he's discussing in his book. How do we boldly and biblically live out our faith without living in judgment toward others? And you might think that sounds easy, but it's not. You might think it's impossible, but it's not. Because when it comes to our faith, we do want to live boldly and biblically. We don't want to compromise our beliefs just because somebody else has a different belief. We don't want to cave on what we know to be true just because the broader culture says that's an old fuddy-duddy belief, and that's not for the times anymore. Or maybe it works for you, but not for me. So we want to, stand, to what we stand with what we know is true without standing in judgment of everyone else around us. That's the tightrope that we're going to try to learn to walk today. We don't want to constantly sit in judgment of others. And here's what's interesting with Jude. At the beginning of the portion that we read... He's actually, the people that he's talking about seem to be in the context, talking about people in the church who are not living an authentic faith. Now he's also, I think at the end, talking about people outside the faith. So that's both. So I don't want to, and we'll talk about examples, but I don't want to look at other people of faith and judge them because they're not on my level. I want to avoid that. And I don't want to cast off people outside the faith because if I do that, what hope have I given them? If I've pushed them aside and said, you can't belong here, and you're not welcome here, and you're too bad, well, I don't want to do that either. But it's not always easy to live that. That's why it's a tightrope that we're trying to walk. I want to live boldly and biblically without living in judgment toward others. So James, especially James 2, so you can turn there. We'll be there. We'll go through the whole chapter today. Don't worry. It won't take that long. The chiefs don't play till 730, so we're fine. Uh, However, I know the ladies have to be somewhere, so I'm aware of that. But you did get an extra hour of sleep, so you should have been prepared for a long sermon. I'm just saying. I'm just kidding. But, yes, yeah, so you should have brought snacks, right? <laughs> should have brought snacks. I, I, get, I hear that, yeah. Um, but, uh, we, so here, so James 2, we're going to look at that today in really four sections. And we're going to look at, James is going to show us in chapter 2, four things to remember to help us walk the tightrope. Four things that we can remember to walk this tightrope. So here's the first one. The first thing that we need to remember to walk this tightrope of faith is to remember Jesus' humility. Remember Jesus' humility. Now, there are, there are lots of uh, portions of Scripture that we'll reference in just a second, but let me read the first part of James chapter 2. And it's, it's more implied, I think, here, but we're going to pull it out of the text. James 2, 1-4 through four, says this. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So one of the main issues that James talks about early in his, uh, really in chapter 1 and 2, is the discrepancy in the church between this socioeconomic divide. That basically people are judging one another within the church based on how much money they make or how how nice of things they have or where they are in society. This is apparently a huge problem wherever James is writing to. And so, you know, certain people in the church, maybe even the leaders will brown nose to the rich people, you know, because they're big givers. So I got to really make them feel welcome. So they'll keep giving. Right. Or, you know, we look down on the poor. They don't have a lot to, to offer. They don't bring a lot of value. And so we're just going to kind of shove them literally over to the side or make them sit on the floor. So James says, no, what, what we need is to remember the humility of Jesus Christ to avoid making this mistake. Uh, and there's, I'll just reference a few things right offhand. Philippians chapter 2, the first few verses there, talks about the idea that Jesus came from heaven to earth. So if anyone knows what it's like to be rich beyond your wildest dreams, it's Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God, right? Heaven is his true home. He's worshipped by angels 24-7. Yet in humility, he left that position to come live as a working man in a blue-collar family in a small town. So he knows what it's like to have everything. He knows what it's like to have nothing. So that's where that humility from Jesus can come from. We'll talk about more around Christmas on on that, so I'm not going to spend any more time on that. But in Isaiah 53, verse 3, Jesus is described this way. He was despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. So again, Jesus lived a life of humility. He was despised and rejected, as we'll see here in a minute. And even in Matthew 13, it says that he couldn't do many miracles in his own hometown, because of the people's unbelief. Normally, if you're a celebrity from a small town, they'll build you a statue, you know? Like, they'll give you the key to the city. They'll elect you as mayor when you're retired because you're, you're somebody. You came from this little town where no one's heard of, and now you're a big shot. But Jesus had the opposite happen to him. They went, when he they thought well you're too big for your britches now because you're trying to come back i'm jesus the big you know doing these crusades and now you're coming back to rub it in our face or whatever the reason was they rejected him they did and so he couldn't do many miracles there matthew says because of his own people's unbelief but despite judgment and rejection coming toward him jesus still lived a life of humility let me give you two examples of this uh, in two different ways. So John chapter 1 is an interesting case study in the humility of Jesus. So let's look at John 1:45 through 50 and look at this example of the humility of Jesus. It says this: Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, "We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth." Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, "Can anything good come from Nazareth?" "Come and see for yourself," Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, Do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. So Jesus is judged by someone who's never met him before simply because of his zip code. Maybe you've been there before, or maybe you've done that before. They live in this nice house in a really nice neighborhood. Well, they're probably really a snotty rich person, right? Maybe you've been there or been, been on the other end of that, right? Or maybe someone will look at, well, you're from that part of town. Oh, boy, you must be a charity case. Like, I don't really have time for someone like you maybe that's you've you've experienced that jesus experiences this just because of where he's from someone makes a snap decision about everything about him and the, the phrase that nathaniel uses is a common phrase for whatever reason nazareth is like the wrong part of the region nothing ever good comes from there and so that becomes a walking running theme throughout the entire region and nathaniel quotes that but what's interesting is jesus's response To being rejected his response is humility right what first he calls nathaniel a genuine son of israel that's not how i would respond if somebody slammed where i'm from probably right he says you're complete in your integrity well no he's just talking bad about you behind your back before he even meets you how is that a person of integrity so jesus really i mean shows like butters on the 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 humility big time for nathaniel and then he even says you will see greater things so even though Jesus was rejected right off the bat by this person, he doesn't return with rejection. He says, no, you can still be one of my followers. Yeah, you're gonna see real if you think, if you think me knowing who you are without having met you is cool, you just wait till you see I raise somebody from the dead. You just wait till you watch me rise from the dead in a couple of years, buddy. So he's, he invites him to still be one of his inner twelve. This guy who immediately just by, based upon zip code says, now this guy's a loser, this guy's a nobody. He who is this guy? right? So here's the thing. If Jesus rejected everyone who rejected him, boy would I be in trouble. Because my sin is a rejection of Jesus. If Jesus rejected everyone who rejected him, we'd all be in a sorry state. But he doesn't do that. Through his humility, he shows us there's a different way, there's a better way. The second example is in John 4. You probably know the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at at a well. So this This woman could have been judged for so many cultural reasons by Jesus. First, sorry ladies, just because she's a woman, Jesus could have just totally ignored that she even existed, right? That's how the world worked in that part of the world, or in the world at that time, right? He has no reason to engage with her, but yet he does. Not only is she a woman, she's a Samaritan woman who the Jews and Samaritans have a long checkered past. They don't agree, they don't get along, it even says at the beginning of john 4 that most people would walk around the entire region of samaria to get from one part of israel to another but jesus walked straight through really because he probably knew i'm going to meet someone that needs to hear the gospel right so he engages with a samaritan woman who on top of all those things working against her has a terrible reputation in her hometown And we know this because she's coming to get water from the well by herself at the middle of the day where any self-respecting woman would come with the other women early in the morning to get water. So she's already been rejected by everybody else. She has a bad reputation. She has all these things working against her, and yet still Jesus engaged with her. He had every reason to judge her, to push her away, to say, no, I don't have time for you. I didn't come for you. But instead, he engages with this woman. And it didn't just change her life. It did. But then she became one of the first evangelists. Her encounter with Jesus, she said, stay right there. I'll be back. She runs and tells her whole town, you're never going to guess who I just met. And he stays there a couple more days preaching and teaching in Samaria. A place that other Jews would be like, oh, not going there, not even going to like step my toe in there. He He stays there for like three days because he had this encounter with this woman. He engaged with her. And so if you and I want to make a change, we have to engage. We can't have people at arm's length all the time who disagree with our views or who are Tuesday are going to vote different than we might vote or who are going to see the world differently or who worship differently or who talk differently or who look differently. If we're going to make a change, we have to engage. That's the whole point. And it takes humility to do that. It does. It takes the humility of Jesus to do that. And so as we live in humility, it will change how we approach people, how we engage people, and it will make us more effective in reaching people with the good news about who Jesus is. So that's the first thing that James wants us to remember is the humility of Jesus. The second thing that we can remember to walk this tightrope, I want to live a life of faith without living a life of judgment, is to remember God's grace. Let's keep moving along here. James chapter 2, 5 through 7. James writes, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom we, to whom you belong? So, the beginning part of that here is this idea of God's grace being at work. It's it's sort of it makes me think of uh, first Corinthians where Paul says God uses the weak to shame the strong And that's really what James is saying here He says God's chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God So it's a reversal in the way that we see things is really how things work The way that we see things naturally we have to look at that upside down or inverted or Look at the inside out somehow because it's everything that we see is backwards as far as the kingdom of god is concerned. So again, he uses the the rich to shame the poor, he uses the the weak to shame the strong. He uses the simple to confound the wise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians and James echoes that sentiment here in James chapter 2. This goes back to this idea of god's grace at work in our lives. He's he's using someone simple like me, like from a small town that nobody's ever heard of, even in my state of Kentucky, no one knows where Owenton is, right? unless you're from there, right, to do something. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. That's not, I'm not making the comparison to what I just talked about, so don't, don't, go, don't go there, okay? But I'm saying God can use someone like me, someone like you, like you're, you're just a normal everyday person. You're not well-connected. You're, if you're filthy rich, please talk to me. We have a project we'd like to fund. Yeah. <laughs> but you're just a normal person. I mean, I'm not saying that to slight you. I'm saying that's what you'd, you'd say about yourself. I'm just a normal person. That's our excuse for God not to use us sometimes, or sometimes we think maybe we're better than we are. James gets to there later in his, in his letter. Sometimes we look at somebody else who's not as fortunate as I am, and I might think, oh man, man, they really need help. Well, sure they do, but so do I. We have to remember God's grace in our interaction with people. Let me give you from Ephesians 1, going to Paul here, a great description of grace, God's grace to us. We'll look at two descriptions from Ephesians. Here's the first one. Paul says, even before he made the world, God loved us. And chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. Did you know that God loves you first and foremost? Did you know that if you are in Christ, He chose you? Did you know that He chose to bring you into His family? You did not belong. You were not born into this family. You were adopted into God's family. And it says here that it brings God great pleasure to do this. You being a part of God's family is not an inconvenience to him. It's not a drag on him. It's not a thing that he felt obligated to do. It brings him great pleasure. And God did all this just because, Paul says, because he wanted to. See, I say this often, but let me say it again. God doesn't need any of us ever For any reason. He was totally fine before Genesis 1 ever was even thought of. Father, Son, Spirit, perfect community with one another. They're fine. He's fine. He doesn't need anything. It's because he wanted to. That's a pretty big deal. But here's the thing. The, The key is the end of that. It's because of his kindness and grace that we have anything from God. That's what Paul's saying here. I don't earn anything from God. I can't. I don't deserve anything from God. I can't. Everything he gives, everything he does, everything that we're blessed with is an act of his grace. So may we remember that as we deal with other people. Someone might put off a negative vibe, right? We need to show that person grace and give them a chance. Someone, might have, someone that we sort of kind of tangentially know may have a bad reputation, that person needs grace. They need to prove to you that that is who they are, because maybe you've got some bad info from somebody who's got a grudge against them, and they put that thought in your mind about them. Well, no, they need need grace. Just like God brings me in, we need to bring other people into our sphere, in our lives, to show them grace. It's this idea that no one owes me anything. Everyone has bad moments where they fall or they aren't at their best. They need grace. We all have uh, times where we lose our temper, we're not careful with our words, we all wrestle with sin. That's why, going back to Jude that we started with, people in this room, we all deal with certain sins, behaviors, issues, hang-ups, problems, all of us. So it's not that because mine is different, mine is less bad. Or because I have fewer issues that I'm so much better. It's no, we're all in need of God's grace. Everything we are, everything we have belongs to him. It's true in our everyday life and it's true with our faith. Back to Ephesians chapter 2 very quickly. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Our whole idea of faith is grace-based. Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So when it comes to other people of faith, some people are not as far along as you might be, right? So they need grace. Some people are coming out of serious baggage or addiction. They need grace. Some people don't catch on as quick to certain things about faith. Guess what? They need grace. Some people have cultural Things that make it hard for them to understand this part of the Christian faith. They need grace. They need a little bit of extra time and attention to help them maybe understand why it is this way. Well, they grew up a different way. That's okay. Some people have religious baggage. They have terrible experiences at, at other churches besides this one that is perfect in every way. No, no, no. But there are people that have been to this church, and I've heard their stories. They had terrible experiences elsewhere. They They need grace. Because maybe they're a little timid about getting involved in a church again. Maybe they've had people that have hurt them deeply. They're like, I'm not up for that again, but I'm giving it a shot. They need grace. So my prayer is, and I hope our prayer would be, God, help me to not expect more from others than I expect from me. God, help me to see others the way that you see them. People in need of grace, patience, time, attention. And God, help me to see others the way that you see me someone in need of grace because I want it for me right you want it for you and so the more that we can learn everything that we have is a gift of grace everything that God gives us is an act of grace it can help us to better extend that to others as we begin walk that tightrope between I'm going to live this life of faith I'm going to stand in my beliefs but I'm going to give grace along the way that's part of walking that tightrope is to remember God's grace The third thing that we want to remember in this tightrope walk that James shows us is to remember God's word. Remember God's word. James 2, 8 through 11, continuing on in James 2 here. He writes, Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. Now this passage is not about murder and adultery. What he's doing there is he's showing us that the equality of God's commands, that he kind of means all of them. He kind of has them all on the same level. There's not like, now we we look at the Ten Commandments as the top of the top, but but they're all equal. All 613 plus, including those 10, are all there. They're all on the same level. Jesus did say, one thing that's strange, he said there is a great, the greatest commandment that his brother James talks about here. The two, and it's really two. The greatest commandment, Jesus was not, if he was not good at one thing, it was math. He said the greatest commandment is two things. I'm like, wait a second, Jesus. He's like me, not good at math, so I am like Jesus. All right, okay, cool. He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment, okay? James is saying here, if we live in judgment of others, we're breaking the greatest commandment, which then makes us guilty of breaking all of the commandments. So it's a negative spin on this. Let me give you a positive spin to kind of maybe make it more palatable for us. Uh, Romans 13, Paul says the same thing basically but in a in a, a positive spin on it so let's look at kind of two sides of the same coin here romans thirteen eight through 10 owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation could you catch that obligation to love one another if you love your neighbor you will fulfill the requirements of god's law For the commandment says you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Again, go back to James 2, if we neglect to love others by judging them, we've broken the entire law, all of them. Paul says, but... If we love others, we've then fulfilled the entire law. It's the same idea, just in how you view it. James is a little more harsh than maybe Paul might be. Uh, That's okay. Uh, So, and here's the thing. This may sound good and noble. Okay, love people. That sounds great. But it's kind of abstract, doesn't it? Love people. Love everybody. What does that mean? How far does that go? Practically, how do I do that? Luckily, Paul tells us we're going to look at... uh, 1 Corinthians 13, for just a minute, the love chapter. I've used this in weddings before. It's in, maybe you would had it in your wedding. Uh, but I want us to look at it in this every day, not just with your spouse. Not, don't just lo- now, obviously love them, right? But love is, is expressed in the same way for everyone. So let's look at this here. We're going to work through it for just a minute. And this is remembering God's word, okay, to right, walk this tightrope. First Corinthians thirteen four through six, Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. So this here, let's walk through these descriptions of what, of what love does not do in an effort to then see how we can love people and obey the law and God's word. This is how we live in love, not in judgment. So he says, basically, impatience is equal to judgment here. So I'm going to include this idea of not sitting in judgment of others with these views of what love is not, okay? Impatience is judgment because impatience says, my time is more important. I can be upset that I have to wait because what they're doing is less important than what I'm doing. Now, I'm, I'm going to try my best to not come off really harsh here, but maybe this is just for me. Maybe I just needed, I needed to work through this. So I'm, I'm gonna just, you're going to have like a self-therapy session with Stephen. If this applies to you, great. It's not meant to be like, do these things, but it is meant to be do these things, right? That's the idea. Impatience is judgment because it means my time is more important than somebody else's. So I have a right to be upset that they're taking too long. I have a right to be angry that, you know, they're not doing it on my time. So be careful of that. Uh, He says, to be unkind or to be rude is judgment because it means my feelings are more valid than somebody else's. I don't care how how what I say to them or how I say to them affects them. It doesn't matter because I feel this way. So I have a right to be unkind. I have a right to be rude because they're doing fill in the blank. So that's where that judgment comes in. If we live in this way of not loving others, it does equal judgment. Jealousy is judgment because they don't deserve that thing. I do. They don't deserve that promotion. I do. They don't deserve that nice house. I do. Jealousy is judgment. It's comparative. They probably had an advantage. They probably cheated. They probably doing something under the table that's dirty to get ahead, right? It's a jealousy is a judgment or my happiness is more important than theirs. So I don't want them to be happy because I want what they have. Jealousy is judgment. He goes on to say boasting, love does not boast because boasting is judgment. Cuz boasting is look at me. I deserve attention. Give it to me. Give me my attention. You know, applaud the things that I've done. Let me boast about my accomplishments. Boasting is judgment. Look at how hard I work compared to this person. Look at how much I've achieved compared to everybody else. Boasting is judgment. It's forgetting God's word. Then he goes on to say, demanding your own way. Love doesn't do that because that's judgment. Because your opinion is not as important as mine. I want my way. I don't care what you want. I don't care what your preferences are. I want my way. And like, you know, Veruca, I want it now. Okay? And you saw what happened to her. Just talk about that the other day with Kennedy. You know what happened to Veruca? Depending upon what version of the movie you like, you know, it didn't end well. Or demanding my own way as judgment because I don't care about your wisdom or experience. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care if you've done that before, you've lived that, and you've really got something you can impart to me that's going to help me. I'm going to do it my own way. I want to make my own mistakes. I've probably told this before. My sister used to have that mindset growing up. I want to make my own mistake. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm like, why? I want to make as few mistakes as possible, right? So, but demanding your own way is judgment because your opinion's more important, your wisdom and experience is more important. Irritability. This is a hard one for me because I get irritable. Anybody else get irritable sometimes? Yeah, okay. Ir- Some of you are liars. Okay, irritability... <laughs> Irritability is judgment because irritability typically, the way I do it, maybe you can help me do it better, is passive-aggressive, like, yeah, whatever, Ah, you know, or you just make grunts instead of answering questions, like, you know, whatever. So what what I've tried to learn to do is kind of be aware of that because you can't avoid that at all. Some things are just going to make you feel a certain way right? We're hardwired with emotions by God on purpose. So some things are just going to make you feel weird. You're not going to know really why you kind of feel off, but you do. And it's going to affect your mood and the way you talk to people, the way you approach stuff. So what I've I've tried to do is is to be aware of that and give Kim a heads up. Like, hey, I'm just going to let you know. I'm not sure why. I'm just really irritable. And she does the same. She's, I mean, she's good with that anyway. So I probably picked that up from her, in fact. So counselor Kim over there. So being open about that is, is a way to avoid that in, in, in some sense. I'm not trying to make you, because sometimes if we're irritable in a passive-aggressive way, we're seeking attention in that in some way. Like I want them to ask me what's wrong, but if they ask me, I'm going to bite their head off. <laughs> I'm going to act weird, but if they accuse me of acting weird, I'm going to say, how dare you accuse me of acting weird? You know, that's what irritability does. And so as we're aware of that, uh, we can avoid living that way and maybe save relationships or save you know, things that happen in our lives that wouldn't otherwise happen. And then he goes on to say in in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Because keeping a record of wrong is literally judging. I mean, that's like the most obvious one, I think. Because what, what keeping record of others' wrongs does is saying, your mistakes are worse than mine. Or you need to be reminded of your mistakes because you haven't figured it out yet. I know more, and so I'm going, to help, I'm going to help you out by reminding you of all the things you've ever said or done wrong, right? That's what we think we're doing. We think we're helping, but we're, we're not. Or keeping a record of wrongs is judging because it says you don't quite meet my standard, and I'm going to let you know. I'm going to put a time stamp on that thing if I have to, to remind you. I'm going to keep a journal, a bulleted list, so whenever we get, you always do this. No, I'm going to show you in my journal about every mistake you've ever made. It's, it's judging others literally in the greatest sense. And the last one that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 13 is love doesn't rejoice at injustice because that is judging. So let's say, for instance, that someone that you know has been lied about and we just kind of let it go. Right. That is in a way rejoicing at injustice. I could try to speak the truth. I could try to set the record straight. I could try to make it right. But my reputation is more important than theirs. Is really what and sometimes there's fear involved. We have to work through that. Sometimes there's uncertainty about what happens if we get involved. And there's truth in that. We have to push past that. But we have to avoid rejoicing at injustice, even in the smallest of ways, I think is what Paul and James would say here. Maybe someone is treated unfairly and we just sit by and let it happen. In a, in a way, maybe an indirect way, that is a form of rejoicing at injustice. I'm not trying to talk to the other person involved and say, no, you misread that, or no, you've misconstrued something. So we, want to, we can't control everything, okay? we, and we don't need to get involved in everything. But when we can try to right wrongs, we should. When, when we can bring clarity to a muddled situation, we should attempt that. And that is rejoicing in the truth so the truth can win out. So I know that's a lot there, but really what we're saying is, God, help me to fulfill your law by loving others in these practical ways that we've just lined out. Help me to avoid being judgmental in these ways that don't seem on the surface that they're judgmental, but they really are at the core of these things that love does not do, that love is not. And that's how we remember, we remember God's word to walk that tightrope. I'm going to speak the truth, but I don't want to sit in judgment of this person in these everyday ways. Here's the last one, and then we'll we'll finish up this morning. The fourth thing you remember to walk this tightrope. Again, we're trying to figure out how do I live a solid biblical life of faith, hold true to my values and beliefs, hold true to God's word without sitting in judgment. The fourth thing you remember is to remember God's judgment. This one's tricky, so we'll we'll look at the rest of James 2, and then we'll kind of flesh this idea out as we close today. James 2, 12 and 13 He says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Let me be clear and exact on what James is saying here. Again, he's writing to Christians in a church, people of faith. So what I don't think he's doing here, he's not He's not threatening hell on this church, okay? So, people apart from faith in Christ, their words and deeds are judged by God, and then their punishment without faith in Christ would be hell. But he's talking to the church here, so really what happens is, still, he says, and Jesus will say in a moment, that even as followers of Jesus, our words and deeds are judged by God. Now, the way that that's different is really our sin has been judged on the cross, so that's covered, but our words and deeds are then either rewarded or wasted at the, at the final judgment for believers. It may not make a lot of sense, hopefully it does, but that's as clear as, as I can make that mud, okay? So again, Paul, Paul, James is saying here that judgment or lack of mercy does not equal hell, but it, does, it should give us pause to consider that our words and actions are still judged. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. He says a very similar thing. I wonder where James got this from. Probably his older brother, right? Matthew 12, Jesus speaking here. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Again, as a follower of Jesus... God does keep track of my words to others. So what I want to, if I'm trying to remember God's judgment, if I'm trying to remember that, I want to think, okay, are these words to someone else kind? Are they helpful? Are they understanding? Or am I being difficult unnecessarily? Am I being judgmental in my speech towards someone else? If I'm a follower of Jesus, I want, my, I want to use my words wisely. Because otherwise, when it comes to the very end of things, my words will then be wasted. And I don't want to waste my words. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want my words to be wasted. I want them to really count for something to make an actual positive difference and impact on the people around me. So in keeping with God's judgment of my words, he, and I'm not, don't, don't think of God necessarily as big brother, Okay, he's always watching. I mean, he is, and he's going to judge you. And he is, it's true, but this should be more of a, okay, self-policing mechanism here. It's good to have those evaluations once in a while to think, okay, are the words that I'm speaking words that should be said? Am I saying them in the way that I should say them because I don't want to waste my words? And then one more passage as we close, again, it's 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, one more time as we begin to wrap it up, talks about our deeds also being judged. Paul writes this, because of God's grace to me, I've laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now, others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw but on the judgment day, Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. Now, here's the same idea as James. He's not talking about hell. He's making it very clear here. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So again, Paul nor James, are threatening hell, right? But they are warning of an empty, wasted life if we're not building it on a firm, we were saying it this morning, we're building it on a firm foundation. Which to me, if, if like, I've already escaped hell through Christ, check that box, that's great. Like the next worst thing is to waste my life in Christ. That's the next worst thing. So what am I building my life on? What am I building my faith on? And here's what here's with with the deeds, what some questions to consider. Am I trying to do good things to be seen? Is that the motive? That'll be burned up. It's a waste. Am I trying to do certain things to receive approval or applause from others? If that's the motivation, even good things done for those reasons, Paul says, are gonna be burned up. Am I trying to do things just to please people? If I do, those things in the end are going to be burned up. It's going to be wasted effort, wasted time. Am I trying to do certain things to show others up or show them how it's done? If I'm doing even good things for the wrong reasons, Paul says all of that effort is for nothing. All of that time is then wasted. It's all burned up. There's nothing left to show for my life in Christ, but I got to, you know, my rear end is kind of singed because he says I barely escaped the flames. Like, I want to do more than that with my life. I don't just want to say, yeah, I'm a Christian and well, I can feel the flames. I'm as close as I can get. No, no, no. I want to do as much for Christ as I can through word and deed. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to have my deeds destroyed. And it's not just for me. I don't want to say, well, look at what I did for Christ. That's not the point. The point is that on Judgment Day, when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, he's like, hey, man, you you knocked it out of the park. Like, I'm trying to please him. That's the whole point. I'm trying to walk this tightrope, not for my sake, not for your sake, but for him. That's the motivation. That's really where that tightrope walk comes into play. Because if I'm more concerned about me and God and how we're doing, I'm going to be less likely to judge everybody else. If my sin offends me as much as your sin offends me, I'm going to be able to walk that tightrope pretty good. Okay? If I'm focused on the grace that God has given to me and less on how much he's given you and it's more and it's not fair, I'm going to be able to walk that tightrope a lot better. So that's all we're saying here is we want to remember we want to remember the humility of jesus as he lived his life and tries as best we can like oh you know there's the wind comes through try to knock us down we got to just stay on that line right we've got to remember god's grace to us his his grace to us like we don't deserve any of it but he gives it anyway it's amazing we want to remember god's word and then god's judgment that i want my life to count for something i want to make an impact in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel for the cause of Christ, to build his kingdom. Not my kingdom, right? Not about me, it's it's about him. So that's what we want to do. We want to live on purpose, with purpose, to make that difference as we walk this tightrope walk of faith. Let's pray. God, we all desire, if we're we're people of faith, we desire to live a solid, biblical life. We want to live a life that's grounded in truth, that does have a firm foundation, and that does make a difference. And so help us to walk that very thin line. Help us to remember these things that we have talked about today, that we don't deserve anything either, that it's not about us, that we want to deal with our relationship with you and be less concerned about those around us. We want to help them along. We want to do life together. We want to be uh, an influence on them. We want to bring people that are apart from you into into your family like we've been brought in. And so help us to remember how great you are and how you'll use anyone for your purpose, how you've gone to any length to save us, and you'll do the same for them. Help us to focus our eyes upon you not about our good works, not about the bad works of others, not about how they're different, not about how I'm better, but about how, no, I want to walk in truth and stand for truth and live for you, and that's what I want to focus on. And I believe as we do that, as we keep our eyes fixed firmly on you, we can walk that tightrope so much better. We'll be so less likely to fall off or get knocked off or get blown off, and it's it's just so amazing what we can do when our focus is intently upon you. And so I pray for us today who are people of faith that you would help us to live that way as best we can in our moments of weakness, strengthen us, in our moments where we're going to give in and say or do something that's not going to be helpful. Help the Holy Spirit to give us that self-control that we so desperately need in every area of life, every moment of every day, to remember that it's all about you. And so I thank you and praise you for all those here today. Give us a great week this week and bring us back next time ready for more of you in Jesus' name, amen.